This is another episode of the Top House Walkthrough Podcast. My name is Ben, co-founder of the Top House Real Estate App, where you can discover homes with short video walkthroughs shot by some of the top agents in your local neighborhood. Today, we're discussing some legal topics in the residential market. I'm joined by Beruzan Muzgar, who is the general partner and founder of Lexpan Legal Professionals, uh, and I'm excited to pick his brain. Just as an advisory, this is not to be construed as legal advice for any issues you might be having. Please consult your legal professionals. How would you describe what's happening in the market right now? So, uh, as you probably know, a lot of deals are not closing. Uh, there's a big uh, downturn in the real estate market. Lots of people are having issues getting their mortgages uh, in place for closing. Uh, a lot of them have been promised that they can get a mortgage. So on the basis of that, or they're under the impression that they're going to get it, they've already entered into an agreement of purchase and sale. They have a closing date. And, uh, you know, oftentimes closer to closing, they realize that something's wrong. And, uh, yeah, they they uh, end up in a position where, where they don't have the funds on closing. So my understanding is from the top of the market, to today, the market has come down quite quite a bit. And if you were if you purchased at the peak, and you perhaps didn't have your mortgage fully approved, maybe you were pre-approved, but uh, the appraisal wasn't done, then that could come short, and all of a sudden the the bank would say, "Hey, make up the difference." Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. And so, what happens if the appraisal comes short? and you got to come up with a large amount of money that you don't have, how can you close? Uh, so it's it's actually really difficult uh, because there is no uh, proper way to do it. Like for example, uh, some people think that a second mortgage is an option. Uh, even though uh, technically speaking it is, uh, it really isn't because most first mortgages have a condition that says no secondary financing on closing. So uh, when a buyer wants to close and there's a shortfall and they need a second mortgage for that, uh, they end up hiring another lawyer because the lawyer who's completing the purchase for them is also acting for the bank under a joint retainer. Therefore, that lawyer has an obligation to disclose everything to the bank. Uh, and uh, the, the buyer ends up, when they do that, they end up hiring another lawyer uh, who is dealing with uh, the private mortgagee's lawyer on the financing. Uh, they get the document signed. But the, the complexity with that transaction uh, is twofold. One, uh, the main bank can't know about it, so it's improper. You're already in breach of your mortgage uh, contract with the bank. Uh, but also, uh, because the registration can't happen at the same time, the private lender uh, will have to assume a risk right. because... They will have to essentially advance the funds without having registered a mortgage uh, so that the purchase lawyer can send the funds to the seller's lawyer and uh, get the deal closed and the mortgage, the second mortgage, with the second mortgage being registered the day after. So there is a risk for the private lender. Because of that, a lot of private lenders aren't um, interested in those types of deals and they prefer to do an outright first first mortgage, uh, private mortgage. And you don't always deal with a shortfall necessarily. Uh, a lot of times we see financing that just completely falls falls through. And it's oftentimes hard to tell what the reason is. 
Um, a lot of times it's because the mortgage broker hasn't been uh, fully honest with the bank and maybe they have um, submitted the application. They've bolstered the, uh, the buyer's financial abilities in the application and the bank is doing their due diligence closer to closing and then they learn, for example, that the job that was listed is not a real job and they, they cancel the deal. So if you have a shortfall, I guess that's a better problem. Sometimes there's just no mortgage at all and you, you know, a solicitor never receives the mortgage uh, instructions. Are you seeing a lot of transactions that are like this? Yeah, for sure. We're seeing a lot of transactions, a lot of deals that are not closing. And uh, it's because of the nature of the market, we're also seeing a lot of extensions being granted because unlike uh, a, a seller's market, uh, in, in a market like this, the seller doesn't really have a lot of good options available to them either, right? Litigation is extremely expensive, time-consuming. Uh, if, you, if you're the seller and you understand that the buyer doesn't have the, the, the financing in place, what's another two weeks or three weeks for you, right? Maybe you can give them that and see if they can close. If they can close, it's a lot better than uh, forfeiting the deposit and suing them. Uh, and, and, you know, eventually selling the property for a much lower price and suing them for the, uh, for the difference. Right. So, um, so even though we see a lot of deals that are not closing, we also see a lot of extensions that are being granted. Um, interestingly, in this market, it's actually not, it, it's not too strange to ask for an abatement in purchase price or a discount. Mm -hmm. um, you know, previously that was unheard of. You, you know, you wouldn't, you, you would not ask for something like that. It, it, it didn't make sense at all. But now we, we get those types of requests when we're acting for sellers and when we're acting for buyers, we get our clients, sometimes our clients instruct us to do that. It doesn't always work and there's a danger to that. Um, it's called anticipatory breach. You know, if, if you do that, depending on how that request is communicated, uh, it can be construed as an indication that you're not going to close if the discount is not granted. So it's a little dangerous, but we do see that happen too. So sellers were uh, eating up part of the um, uh, part of the cost to the to to the buyer to get to the help deal. them, yeah, to get the deal closed because they when they do the math they see that the alternative isn't necessarily better. There's so much there I want to unpack. So so let's start with when the buyer realizes the market has dropped or their financing isn't coming through, they decide we're not going to close on this. They put 5% down, but the market has come down maybe 30% on that home that they purchased. Now they decide they don't want to close. The seller knows that it's not coming together on closing as we approach it. What are the seller's options at that stage? Yeah, so it really depends on if that issue has been communicated to the seller. Uh, so the doctrine of anticipatory breach works uh, in the following way. If the buyer, or if actually any party to the contract, by their actions or words, they communicate uh, an inability uh, or a lack of a willingness to close, right? And it's, it's clear that they're not going to close. 
That is called an anticipatory breach. As soon as it happens, the innocent party has two options. Either you terminate on the basis of the anticipatory breach before closing. So if that happens, let's say 10 days before closing, you don't need to wait until closing. You can just terminate uh, on the basis of anticipatory breach and sue for damages. Uh, or you can push for performance. But that election is really important. It's extremely important for the seller to know that from, a, uh, from, the, uh, from the perspective of the law, they are going to look at the election that you've made. You can't right. flip-flop, right? You need to pick between those two options. Uh, either you keep pushing for performance and you say, no, you have to perform on closing. We are going to be ready, willing, and able to close, and we expect you to be ready, willing, and able to close, and then wait for closing to, to come and the eventual default if that happens, or you can terminate in advance. The advantage of terminating in advance is, number one, you don't have to wait, right? Let's say closing is end of August and early August, you learn that they're not going to close. What's the point of losing the summer market, right, when you know they're not going to be able to close? Uh, the second advantage is that uh, you will be discharged of the obligation to tender. So if, as the seller, if you terminate early on that basis, you no longer have to exchange closing documents, you no longer have to send them the keys, you no longer have to prepare the statement of adjustments, you no longer have to uh, prepare the transfer on TerraView. Uh, all of those things are important because if the seller doesn't do that, then you're giving a really good excuse to the buyer in the litigation that follows. Because um, one of the defenses that is available to a, a purchaser is that the seller was also not ready uh, to, or able to close. Right. It was a mutual problem. It was not just the buyer's problem. Sure, the buyer couldn't get the financing, but also the seller was not in a position to deliver vacant possession. So if the seller doesn't call anticipatory breach and terminate early, technically speaking, on closing, that property better be vacant if, uh, if, if the agreement calls for that. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you, if as the seller, if you just sit there, do nothing on the basis of uh, your understanding that the buyer is not going to close anyway, and you haven't even... Um, made arrangements for the move or completed your tender, then the buyer can say, well, you, you didn't really do your work either, right? So this was a mutual problem and therefore time is no longer of the essence and we can figure out a date that works for both of us for, for the closing. Um, so anticipatory breach does help. Buyers are, are, when they have a good lawyer though, they are careful. So it really, uh, it really depends on how the issue is being communicated. Uh, if, uh, if it doesn't clearly indicate that they're not going to be able to close, you can't deem that as uh, an anticipatory breach. As an example, there's case law that says that a mere request for extension isn't anticipatory breach. right? If as the buyer I say my client needs an extension of two weeks, if you think about it, uh, unpack that, it means that if you don't give it to me, Probably I'm not going to be able to close, but because I haven't said as much, um, it, 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 it's not going to be construed as anticipatory breach. But if I say, for example, that uh, there is no way I can close on September 1st, you know, it's not going to happen. 
uh, and the only way is if you give me two weeks, then maybe that can be uh, treated as anticipatory breach. So it, 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 it's really important how that is communicated. A lot of times though, when uh, let's say for example, in the case of an abatement, let's say the buyer wants a discount. From a psychological perspective, the only way that discount might work, the request for discount might work, is if the seller knows very clearly that that's the only option available to them, right? So if, I, if I'm the buyer and if I tell the seller, uh, can you give me a $100,000 discount? But if you don't, it's fine, I'll close. You know, to ensure that there's no anticipation, obviously the seller's going to say, no, go ahead, <laughs> go ahead and close. So if I really want that request for discount to work, uh, I, I will need to risk uh, anticipatory, anticipatory breach, breach because I'm going to have to say uh, it I is extremely close. unfortunate, but there's really no way we've uh, exhausted all possibilities and, and there's really no nothing else left. So right. either you give us this abatement uh, or, or we're not going to be able to close. Extremely dangerous because soon after that, you can receive a termination letter. And once the deal is terminated, if, if it is truly an anticipatory breach, and if, if it gave the right to the seller to terminate, then there's no going back. You can't say, oh, sorry, I, you know, actually, I can close. The seller right. can say, no, actually, the deal is terminated, right? So finished, it's done. So it's a little dangerous and it's playing with fire, but um, you know, we see that happen and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It really depends on... Uh, Perhaps also how much the amount is. Yeah. So. So if there's anticipatory breach or when, let's say, closing passes, buyer couldn't close, now the seller has to, uh, I guess, sue uh, to, to make the difference. Talk to me about that process. Uh, how, how expensive it, is it? How likely is it that they'll get the, get the money? Um, and, and ultimately, what happens with the deposit? Talk to me about things like that yeah so the deposit uh, the the idea with the deposit is that that amount is to be forfeited to the seller uh, when the buyer can't can't close uh, so it's I guess the to answer your question it's really important to know what the reason is if it's clear that there's no fault on the part of the seller uh, and it's really the buyer who couldn't close then that makes the case easier for the seller. But a lot of times you also see buyers who are looking for excuses, right? And so even though there may not be a lot of merit to their allegations, um, it's not on, on the record when you review the documents, it's not a clear cut case of the buyer not being able to close. Mm -hmm. They are coming up with all sorts of excuses, uh, issues, maybe made up ones even. Um, so, so it depends, and and in the in the process of uh, for for litigation, uh, the seller needs to decide if they just want to get the deposit, uh, or if they want to sue for damages. If they want to get the deposit only, it's a much easier process. It's done through an application, and uh, you you bring an application. You should expect to get that done within six six months or so. When you bring an application, you really uh, shouldn't have any mm, important facts in dispute, right? So an application is a more speedy 
litigation process compared to an action. Um, but it's usually used for simpler disputes where you know essential facts are not in dispute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe you're just dealing, like for example, if the amount of damages is in dispute, then an application wouldn't be the the correct uh, avenue. Um, you bring an application as a seller and you uh, include the brokerage on that application and you ask for an order from the court for the deposit to be released to, to the seller. Uh, in a situation like that, uh, the buyer is going to have to retain a lawyer, spend money on that. And so the seller will have to do the same thing. So usually what we see is a, um, is a discussion uh, about splitting uh, the deposit. You know? So as the buyer, it would make sense if you, if you know that it was your fault and, and, and you know, you're going to be losing the deposit, it would make sense to quickly thereafter uh, start uh, offering uh, a, a large chunk of the deposit to the seller and ask that, like, let's say if we're talking about a $100,000 deposit, you say, okay, I'll take 10 and I'll sign a mutual release and give you the 90. Uh, and then the, it's possible for the seller to accept that. Why? Because their lawyer is probably also asking for a $10,000 upfront uh, retainer plus, you know, possibility of having to spend another 10 to 15. So they do the math and they say, you know what, maybe it's not worth it. I'll just give, give the 10 to... To the buyer and take take the 90. Uh, that only happens when you don't have damages. When we have damages, as a deposit, the seller is entitled to it regardless of damages. So meaning that even if the seller in a subsequent sale ends up selling the property for a higher price, right. they're still entitled to the deposit. They can still go and take the deposit. Right. Uh, if they end up selling it um, for a price that is lower than the original purchase price then there's damages and uh, for that for that type of dispute you need an action so a statement of claim needs to be issued as opposed to a notice of application it's a lengthier process uh, because calculation of damages gets tricky it's usually the defense that is available to the buyer is that the seller didn't take all the steps that they should have taken to sell the property for the highest price possible you know uh, the listing was deficient, the property wasn't staged pro- uh, appropriately, or they didn't uh, get uh, the exposure that they were supposed to get. They didn't advertise it in local media or um, all sorts, right? And also appraisals are extremely important, right? In a subsequent uh, sale, uh, if, you, if you're the seller, it's extremely important to make sure you get appraisals. And appraisals are usually a bit more conservative than the actual market price. <clears throat> so let's say if the original sale price was two million and the seller has now received an offer for six one point six four hundred thousand um, dollar uh, haircut, essentially, it's good. It's a good idea to uh, order an appraisal, which is probably going to come at one point five, maybe. And uh, at least that way, you can use that uh, in the event that the buyer raises that allegation, which they're which they're likely gonna do. Uh, and in an action, you have different uh, stages to that lawsuit. So there's the pleading stage. After pleadings, you deal with discoveries. Uh, then you have mediation for Toronto actions, and then you have trial. 
the first three stages amount to approximately 50% and, and the other 50% usually, both in terms of complexity and costs, is associated with the trial. So if you're going through an action, talk to me about how much that might cost and how long that might take. It could cost quite a lot. It really depends on what issues uh, have been raised. Uh, so, for example, if the only issue is valuation, because usually for an action, to prove facts, you need, uh, you need testimony uh, or, I mean, obviously documents too, which are attached to affidavits. But... Uh, in the end, in, in the legal system here, uh, you facts need to be attached to a sworn affidavit or a, a, a testimony under oath. Uh, I can't just show a document, even an email. I can't just say, Your Honor, take a look at this email. Uh, first thing that the judge is going to say, whose affidavit is this a part of, right? And has that prop person been cross-examined on it? Mm -hmm. They want to make sure that someone who's under oath uh, has given that document and the other side has an opportunity to cross-examine them in case there's any uh, issues with the document. Maybe it's forged. Maybe it doesn't really say what what the other side is uh, proposing it does. Ultimately, so, all of this adds to cost. Yes, so because, because uh, for every witness, you end up spending quite a bit of time figuring out as the opposing lawyer figuring out what questions you need to ask this witness figuring out what additional witnesses you can call to rebut what this witness is going to say so it really depends on the number of witnesses for trial that makes it extremely lengthy and, and complicated so uh, usually you get to one or maybe two witnesses a day so if we're talking about a file that requires five or six witnesses, you may be looking at uh, a two-week trial easily, right? And two-week trial, lawyer charging at 400 bucks an hour. Uh, and, and, there's, and, and keep in mind, in litigation, lawyers also charge for waiting. Uh, so, for example, if there's a, a hearing, you know, and, and you go to court and you have to wait for two hours uh, for your turn to come up, lawyers charging right if there's another lawyer helping that lawyer now you're paying for two people right you know at six six fifty an hour so on a daily basis you're looking at six seven thousand a day just for the trial alone and the preparation for the trial would probably cost twice or three times as much as the trial alone costs so really you'll be looking at let's say thirty thousand a day for trial right if it's a two-week trial do the math Jeez. Yeah, it can get really expensive, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. So really going towards the action approach sounds like there has to be some major damages uh, associated with that for it to be worth it for the seller to pursue. Yes, and the buyer better have assets because if the buyer doesn't have assets, what's that judgment going to do for you? Because getting the judgment is just the first step. You know, you spend lots of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Sometimes you can get the judgment, uh, you know, with with a, with a few thousand. If the if the if the buyer doesn't defend, mm -hmm. it makes it easy, right? You 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 sue. There's no defense. Note them in default, and then you get default judgment. And default judgment means judgment in the absence of the opposing party. The opposing There's, party. Nobody's really done anything, and then that's it. You got your judgment with. 
10,000, you can get your judgment if they don't defend, but usually they will. But then getting paid is a whole getting other Getting paid is a whole other process, extremely right. complicated. There's a lot of people that, uh, that I know uh, that have judgments against them and they are, you know, living their lives as if there is no uh, issue and there's no judgment. And it's really hard, uh, especially depends on the, their professions too. So, for example, for a real estate agent, it's going to be really difficult to fly under the radar if you have a judgment against you. Why? Because your money is coming from the deals uh, and therefore from the brokerage's trust account, right? The commission. Yes. You're not. You can't be paid cash as a, a, a as a realtor. Uh, but like if you're in construction, if you have a judgment against you, who it's going to be really difficult to prove that this person has any assets um, because they're just getting paid cash and nothing's under their names. And yeah, gets really difficult. Or a buyer who has judgment against them that has a normal job and can't pay the judgment states hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages is the only option filing for bankruptcy or what other if they can't pay what are some options payment plans is another option uh, depending on uh, whether the judgment creditor is willing to accept it uh, usually in in these situations bankruptcy can sometimes be used as a bit of a leverage to to try to come up with some sort of terms that make sense right something reasonable uh, and if they have a job uh, as part of the enforcement process, the judgment creditor can garnish the, their wages and uh, write to the employer and have the employer pay part of that, uh, part of the paycheck to them, essentially. And so, and so even that would happen even if you file for bankruptcy? If you file for bankruptcy, it will no longer happen. But to qualify for, and I'm not a bankruptcy expert, you, you know, you should speak to, uh, uh, to someone who does that professionally, but to qualify, bankruptcy is a shield, right? Even though it's a bad thing um, to happen to someone, really, in the grand scheme of things, it's a blessing uh, when you are in, in, in a situation where you owe a lot of money to a lot of people. If you can become bankrupt, then, then that, that bankruptcy the status will protect you uh, from all of these creditors. They're no longer able to enforce. They're no longer able to contact you to collect. So they need to pause all of their efforts uh, to collect. Uh, but the trustee and bankruptcy also, they're a trustee. They have obligations to creditors too. So they need to make sure that this person is qualified to become bankrupt, meaning there's, they, they, have, they don't have any assets. They have disclosed all of their assets, mm -hmm. and um, and that the assets have uh, been liquidated and have been properly distributed among the creditors. So uh, when it, when you're in a situation where the uh, uh, the debtor is hiding their assets, one of the things that the creditors do they point that out to the trustee, and they try to cause issues uh, for. Uh, their bankruptcy proceedings so that they can't become bankrupt. Uh, but yeah, but that's basically uh, how, how that happens. So if the buyer has maybe multiple properties and some assets, 
then uh, they, that would have to get liquidated, paid out to the creditors. But then there's an order in which things must happen. It Definitely. might not necessarily be the seller uh, to, to get that. It might be a mortgage uh, Absolutely. for a property. So. Absolutely. So you have secured uh, creditors, unsecured creditors. There's a whole uh, um, there's there's a whole process for uh, priorities among creditors, and usually in situations like this, you see uh, collateral disputes among creditors fighting over priority. Uh, so you know you, we we see lawsuits where a creditor is suing another creditor right. over how this particular asset should be divided. Right. So yeah, that that also becomes an issue. This all sounds like it could get incredibly complicated and obviously incredibly expensive. What's stopping a buyer who got into maybe a bad deal using that as leverage to just not close? It really depends, right? It depends on, because um, yeah, there is some leverage, but at the same time, this process is really stressful, right? Not everyone can pull it off. Uh, you know, you, you may be the type of person who can go through bankruptcy and still be a happy person and not care about anything. But for a lot of people, it's not like that. It really impacts their family dynamic. It, it impacts their well-being. It impacts their uh, whatever it is that they're, they're doing now. There's uh, a lot of people are ambitious, right? Especially people who are buying in the Toronto market uh, because of the prices that we're dealing with. Typically, these are people who are doing something right, right? Like, where, how do they have the money to buy in Toronto? You right. must either you have a good job or you're you're running a business or you're doing something right to be able to have that initial down payment or, or deposit to, to enter into the agreement of purchase and sale. Once you get derailed into uh, a dispute and bankruptcy proceeding, you lose that uh, focus on on that thing that had brought you all the way there. So yes, it for some buyers, they can use that as a leverage and maybe they can pull that off and it works for them. But a lot of people don't want to go through that type of stress, especially when they have kids. You know, um, how do you want to explain that to your children when you're losing the home that you're living in? Because as a bankrupt, you're going to now fly under the radar. No one really should know what you own. So eventually your kids are going to have to be trained to play along, right? And, and know that, and, and they're going to wonder, you know, why is dad always paying everything cash, right? Why is, so, so it really requires a particular type of lifestyle and a particular type of person. And there are people like that out there. So as the seller, usually you try to gauge, it's, it's a game of poker. Right. It's a game or of poker. Perhaps chicken. Absolutely, yeah. And you know they are, you know, that there's a bluff, and and you try to gauge and see if this person is that type of a uh, debtor, right, or buyer, yeah. And and typically in a dispute, when you learn that the person that you're fighting against doesn't have anything to lose, it gets really scary, right? right? The merits of the dispute no longer matter. You just learn that this person that I'm in a dispute with is completely unreasonable and they, they have nothing to lose. So logic won't work with them because they, they, don't, they don't operate on the basis of that, right? And, 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 and how do you deal with that? It gets really scary because now you're, 
you, you're going to have to pay all of these legal fees. And whatever tactic they're using to scare this person into some sort of a settlement isn't working. They don't care. Right. Yeah. Hold on. Let's just say that you don't want to take action against the buyer. And uh, you're just going to take the deposit and you're going to put the property up for sale. You said there's a process where you make an application. It takes six months. Um, as long as there's no disputes and it's a simple matter, you'll get the deposit quicker. But you can put the property on the market right away and, yep. and sell. Yep. So, so as to maybe reduce your damages, not wait six months. Is that correct? Yeah, you don't even need to get the deposit back. You can relist. As soon as you terminate, you can relist. Right. So you have to officially terminate the agreement of purchase and sale, mention why you're terminating, and then you tell them that I'm going to relist, and you go ahead and list it again. When you file an application for the deposit, technically, the listing agent had performed their duty of selling this property. Mm -hmm. Do they get part of the, their commission, or does it the entire deposit go to the seller after making the application? So the... And, and this really depends on the uh, uh, listing agreement. Uh, the listing agreement typically, and, and I'm going to have to take another look at it to make sure that what I'm telling you is correct, but from what I recall the last time I, I dealt with it, there's a clause that says that uh, the commission is earned upon a successful sale of the property, but in the event that the property is not sold due to the fault of the seller, then they're responsible. So in a situation like this, if it's pretty clear that uh, it was the buyer who uh, who couldn't close, then there's no commission uh, paid because the seller was willing, ready, and able to close, and it was really the buyer who couldn't couldn't close the deal. Right. So, in all likelihood, if it's a simple case, you file for the application, the seller gets the five percent, they sell the property, and if the market has dropped 30%, very likely the seller's out of luck, and they're just going to have to eat that, eat that uh, sort of haircut, as you mentioned. Is this the majority of the cases you're seeing with deals not, uh, not completing? So the seller isn't isn't put in a position where they have to decide if they want to sue right away, right? So they can they can the deposit can sit. It's in a trust account safe you know no one's going to take it brokerages don't release the deposit unless there's a mutual release or a court order so you know the deposit can just sit there so the seller can can list the property again sell um figure out exactly how much their damages are um consult with lawyers there's no rush on the part of the seller so if you're the seller and your deal didn't close and the, and it's been terminated you don't need to decide right now if you want to sue, right. uh, you can you can focus on selling, getting your property sold to someone else uh, at the highest possible price. You have a duty to mitigate your damages, which means that you should take whatever step you think is fit to to sell it for the highest possible price, and and then you can decide later. Right. So yeah, you do have time. You don't. It's not a decision that you need to make right then and there. Got it. Yeah. With respect to what we're seeing in the market today how is that similar and how is it different than what we saw perhaps in 2017 maybe in 2008 
From a financial perspective, it's difficult to tell. Uh, I don't think I'm qualified to speak to that. From a legal perspective, I can tell you it's very similar, right? So uh, we're seeing uh, an increase in private mortgages and demand for them and, and, and transaction counts uh, for private mortgages. We're seeing a lot of extension requests. Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, terminations, whether on the basis of anticipatory breach or failure to close. So from a legal perspective, we're now using a lot of precedents that we used to use in 2017. Right. Uh, but from a financial perspective, whether this one is different, I won't be able to speak to that. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have the qualifications to predict what what's going to happen to the market. But very similar, we see a lot of similar uh, trends right. uh, from a legal perspective, definitely. So you guys close a lot of transactions. Give me sort of a percentage of the deals that perhaps are, are struggling. What percentage of them will ask for extensions and private loans and will make the effort to close versus uh, fall apart? So I think I would say maybe 30% of the deals that, uh, that we've been having in the past, um, let's say two to three months, uh, ran into issues. Uh, and but but what but that but we're at the tail end of it because usually that happens to people who bought when the market hadn't fallen yet and and then their closing ended up being at a time when market had taken a hit uh, so but that's that's now gone almost gone so buyers were buying but you never know right like if a buyer is buying today maybe in a few months again we'll see. But there's already an expectation. The shock factor is gone, right? Because people know that we're now in the new market. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I, I don't know if this is going to continue. But, yeah, definitely in the past uh, two to three months, I'd say 30% of our deals uh, had those types of issues. So this conversation that I had with you, we have it with a lot of our, our, our buyers and sellers. Uh, buyers call us to figure out if there's a way out. Uh, and uh, sellers call us to figure out if uh, you know what they can do in the event that the buyer can't uh, can't, close. Uh, can't close. Yeah. Out of those thirty percent that were struggling, would you say what percentage would you say ultimately end up closing? Uh, quite a bit of them, because the sellers don't necessarily have a better option available to them because of everything that I discussed. And and you know it really depends on where they they get their legal advice uh, a lot of the a lot of litigators out there unfortunately wouldn't mind uh sort of guiding you towards the uh litigation process they don't mind it because it's it's business for them uh, but if they speak to a bunch of lawyers and and get a good idea about the costs and 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 the process and how long it's going to take they realize that they are going to be at a loss regardless. So one thing that is important to note is that justice doesn't exist in the sense that it is defined in the dictionary, right? The term has a meaning in, in, in the dictionary, but that doesn't exist. Why? Because time in the world is limited. We live on this planet for a limited period of time. That means that if I have to spend two years out of the 
70 years or 80 or whatever number of years I'm given on a dispute, even if I win, I haven't really won because I lost two years of my life That's right. dealing with this dispute. I, I was stressed about it, you know, when I was supposed to have fun with my kids and, and, and my family, I was thinking about the dispute. It was it impacted the quality of my uh, my life. And sure, you get some, um, some compensation for your costs, but that usually ends up amounting to approximately 30%, 30, 40% of what you've actually spent on, on your lawyers. So, so, in the end, there's no win. You even the winner loses, right? And that's true for every every uh, litigation file. Litigation. Yeah. So you really should should get into litigation when you absolutely have to, or if you are an organization that uses litigation to set precedents or to set the tone in your commercial dealings. That's a different story. So, those types of organizations have a budget for litigation and, and they know that this money is going to be spent on litigation anyway. Uh, it's already been budgeted. It's just a matter of figuring out which disputes we are going to pursue and which ones we're going to toss, right? right. So that's different. But for an individual or, or some, someone who's not in the business of disputes, you should only uh, start that process if there's no other option available to you. You mentioned something about um, the costs being awarded to the winner. Um, let's just say you go to court, maybe there is a half a million dollars in damages that you get awarded as the winner, um, as the plaintiff, and uh, it costs you $300,000 to get there. Really, the net difference is 200000 but the court then will award some uh, some amount of money for your legal costs. Typically, you're saying that is only 30 to 40 percent of your actual legal costs. Yep. Yes. So 300,000 in that example, I think it's a bit much. This, what you mentioned usually doesn't happen because because costs accumulate over time. The more the uh, the seller in this example pays their lawyer the more they realize how quickly this process is getting more and more expensive. And uh, before it, you know, it, 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 it won't even go that far, usually, right? So as soon as they end up spending about 100000 and then they realize that they've, they've only finished mediation, right? Uh, and, and there's still a, the trial left, uh, they typically... Uh, try to settle and and they lower their demands and their standards and they understand at that point that uh, it's not only me against the opposing party it's also me against my own lawyer right they right. realize that dynamic so it's really important and 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 the lawyer is not necessarily at fault it's it's important to note that too uh, you know a lot of times I hear people telling me, you guys charge so much, you know, it's so unfair. Uh, you're charging an arm and a leg. It's sure, it's true. I couldn't afford myself. Uh, but the reason, the reason the costs are so much is because of the bureaucratic process that is involved in a dispute. And interestingly, I'm not going to be able to tell you how we can improve that because the process, uh, as it pertains to fact finding, 
and determining who's telling the truth and who's lying is designed perfectly. So for example, the fact that it takes two to two and a half years is bad, but at the same time, it's good because someone who's lying is going to have a real hard time remembering what they said two years ago, right? right? So uh, all the, 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 the complexity that is associated with the dispute is bad, but at the same time, it does give uh, rise to more just uh, outcomes, right? Um, and, and, and in a situation like that, uh, you, you know, you, you won't see them having spent 300000 I'd say maybe 100000 for a $500,000 award. And uh, yeah, at the end of it, when the winner is uh, determined, there's uh, hearings after uh, called uh, cost hearings. And then uh, the uh, victor, uh, the winning party, will need to uh, submit their bill of costs. And the other side gets to question it and uh, gets to poke holes in that. And then they take a look at experience level for the council and also unnecessary steps. Did the plaintiff uh, or the winning party take any steps that were unnecessary or overkill? Right. <laughs> uh, and it's really difficult to know what is necessary and what's not. Uh, I usually, uh, when we well, work on a dispute, uh, uh, I, I have uh, I have an example that I use. I use uh, I make an analogy uh, for other lawyers, maybe junior lawyers who get involved uh, with you know this helping me on a dispute. I tell them that you're you are a tour guide, and you're taking uh, the client to Europe, right? Client has a budget, and 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 you're going on a two week uh, uh, tour of Europe. Sure, there's going to be a lot of places to see, a lot of cool things to do in Europe, but there's some major milestones that you want to make sure you hit. You want to make sure, for example, you go to the Eiffel Tower, you, there's certain places that you must see, uh, and also you need to make sure that, you, that, that the client eats uh, three times a day and they have a place to sleep and they have money for the flight back. Right. Now, within... <laughs> that you, you come up with some additional activities. You can't do every single thing that appears to be good. So as soon as you're working on a file, for example, maybe it occurs to you that what the other side said isn't accurate, for example, about their lifestyle or about the amount of money that you have. And sure, yeah, it'd be helpful if we hire a private investigator. Sure, it wouldn't hurt, right? And then we'll have this guy watched the opposing party all day long, but they're charging on an hourly basis. So <laughs> once you use the tour guide analogy, you have to figure out, does this fit within my budget? If you don't do it, have you hurt your client's case uh, in a way that is going to be fatal to them? Right. So it's really difficult when you're the litigator and you want to budget properly and, and get all the way to the end, uh, you really need to make some tough calls. Uh, usually we put that before the client and we say, there's all of these things that you can do, but this is going to increase your costs significantly. And it's possible that in the end, when you win, the other side will say, these costs were unreasonable. I'm, I shouldn't be responsible for that. Right. 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 And yeah, so... So that's the that's the challenge. It gets complicated. And, and how do you how do you win 
with spending the least amount of money possible. Right. And if you're trying to spend little money and not going towards a lot of the details, then then that gives the buyer uh, some some avenues to to, to yep. sort of win a case. Yep. Or defend their case. Yep. So, given this, what percentage of these sort of issues or, or things that are heading towards litigation actually get settled in the middle? A lot of the, uh, I'd say maybe, I want to say 95% of files settle. Settle. Yeah, because the, the process is, is too lengthy and too cumbersome and too expensive. And usually people don't know any better at the beginning. Right. And uh, a year in, they realize that this is this is not what they signed up for. It really depends on uh, on the uh, uh, on the client as well. Some clients know the litigation process really well, and they do that uh, almost professionally. You know, they it doesn't stress them at all when they commute. And 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 also, how much time does your lawyer need to spend with you to to explain the process? That also makes the process more expensive for you right. guys. Like for example, if I have a client who's already done 10 discoveries, I don't need to spend a lot of time explaining to them what discovery is. Mm -hmm. uh, it gets cheaper naturally for them. Instructions come to me a lot more quickly and a lot more efficiently. I send an email to them and they know exactly what to tell me. But sometimes we deal with clients who uh, can't even give me instructions. They need a three hour meeting um, to try to figure out what I'm even talking about yeah. and what options are available to them. So a lot of them settle. Um, and on settlement, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting dynamic to settlement too because the, 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 uh, the more time you spend in the dispute, the farther away you get from a settlement. Really important. But... At the same time, you may uh, hit certain milestones that all of a sudden get you a lot closer, right? Why do you get? Uh, uh, why does it become more difficult to settle? Because let's say, for example, in a situation where uh, the plaintiff expects to receive a hundred thousand, as an example, and they sue, and uh, now you know. Five months in, they've already spent twenty thousand on their own lawyer. So obviously, hundred k uh, at that point is no longer a hundred to them. It's only eighty because mm -hmm. they've already spent twenty thousand. Same with the defendant. Defendants also spent twenty thousand. So if they pay a hundred, they've really paid hundred twenty, right? So so that's why they're moving further and further away from from a reasonable settlement. Uh, when do you get closer to a settlement? When, um, at usually at discovery, the weaknesses sort of surface. And um, I see a lot of lawyers who don't do a proper assessment of the file before taking the retainer. Um, when they see a dispute, they say, sure, I'll do it for you. Don't worry about it. I'll do my best. I think you got a decent shot at this. Sure. And, and they, they don't even spend time reviewing the vial. Uh, and they leave all of that to discovery. At discoveries, they uh, go through the examination, 
process and then they learn of their client's weakness and uh, and when that becomes apparent usually they have a chat with their client and they say listen I, I really don't think this is going in the right direction for you and maybe you should lower your expectations so in that sense when you hit certain milestones sometimes even though parties have spent sometimes you do get closer because uh, a, a particular party who is not in touch with reality might uh, get in touch um, another complicated dynamic with uh, settlements is when you offer to settle and who offers it right uh, there's a psychological issue involved typically from my experience the best time to offer the settle is when when you uh, when you have the upper hand in the dispute and you've already taken a, a jab so um, as an example you know you've brought a motion and, and and you just won that motion that's a good time to offer to settle right. and uh, so so that way your offer is not uh, perceived as a sign of weakness um, and 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 the problem is those opportunities don't come up all the time right so for example probably the worst time to offer to settle is when you were just sued it's not the right time to offer to settle so maybe if you want to do that do it before they're about to sue you because mm -hmm. once they've sued and you make an offer it's not necessarily bad but just from a psychological perspective uh, the party receiving the offer is going to go like, oh, nice, whatever I did worked. So now I'm going to do more of that. I'm not going to accept this offer to settle. I'm just going to uh, keep pressuring this guy so he gives me better offers, right? Right. So, uh, so the time for making uh, uh, the offer or starting that conversation is also important um, Can, from the perspective of what type of leverage it would give you. Right. Can you give me an example of winning uh, bringing emotion and winning from a seller's perspective so for example uh so for pleadings that's the first stage of every dispute and uh, that's basically the statement of claim statement of defense and no evidence is attached so it's extremely important to know that when you sue someone there's no evidence needed to sue not just yet right that comes at the discovery uh, stage uh, so pleadings are usually they, they, they usually contain bold allegations. When you read a statement of claim, it's almost borderline inflammatory. Usually, you know, for example, if their true amount of damages is 200,000, they say 1 million. It's just a lot of bluff in pleadings, mm -hmm. naturally, right? But at the same time, there are certain rules attached to pleadings. You can't just put whatever you want in, in a statement of claim. And... Uh, particularly your pleadings need to have sufficient, we call them particulars, details, uh, and depends on what type of an allegation you're raising. For example, if you're raising an allegation of breach of contract, you need to specify when the contract was entered into, what the uh, essential terms of the contract were, and how was it breached. Or if you're alleging defamation, you need to specify exactly what words were uttered by the defendants that were defamatory and how were they communicated to members of the public and how, what type of damage did they cause. We see pleadings from time to time that are deficient 
and uh, you know they've been drafted by a lawyer who just doesn't understand the rules of pleading. So one motion that you can bring is motion for particulars. Uh, so as soon as you're sued and you're now faced with that 20-day defense, we tell them we're not even going to defend this because your pleadings are deficient. So first we um, uh, send them a demand for particulars. So we say, you know, paragraph 34, you mentioned this, but you haven't provided sufficient particulars. Give me these particulars. If they refuse to do that, then you bring a motion. And really the motion is asking the judge to grant an order so that the other party uh, is forced to give you additional details. Because, mm -hmm. you know, there's also fishing expeditions, right? They say, yeah, why don't I throw defamation? And then in discoveries, I'll try to see, hopefully, there's, I'll find something, right? So, so you want to... So that's an example of a motion that can really give an edge. If the, pla if the plaintiff hasn't uh, prepared their statement of claim properly, uh, it's a good opportunity for the defendant to take a jab by bringing that motion, even though in the, in the main dispute they, they don't have a good case and they're going to lose. Right. It's a good chance that they're going to win that particular motion. And then, they can and come then as with... soon as you win, and there's going to be a cost uh, uh, order for that motion, right? Usually, let's say, in the range of 5000 bucks. And when the seller, who thought he has a winning case, and maybe he does, uh, realizes that, oh, my lawyer just lost the motion. And, and a lot of times, unsophisticated parties don't, um, they can't distinguish between uh, a motion uh, or the final trial. From their perspective, they went to court. There's a judge there, and the judge ruled against them. Not only that, penalized them and asked them to pay costs. Right. So they lose faith in their lawyer, and they it, it really screws up their dynamic. And that's a good opportunity for the buyer to now make an offer to settle. Right. Um, so yeah, so so that's for example uh, uh, an example of a motion. Um, another motion would be motion for undertakings. Uh, when you do examinations in discovery, the uh, witness isn't uh, expected to know everything. Uh, they may not have a particular piece of info handy. So you typically ask for an undertaking to give you that info later, like within you know X number of days. If they fail to, to deliver the undertaking, then you can bring a motion for refusals to... Uh, force them to give you that mm -hmm. uh, additional info. But there's all sorts of motions, and that's actually something that makes a dispute really costly, right? You have disputes that go to trial with, with without any motions, and you have disputes that end up having 10 or 15 motions before it goes to trial, and each motion can cost you 15, 20,000. Right. What happens, what options does a seller have if they can't even afford to go through litigation? Let's say they can't afford anything at all. Do they have any options? Not really. I mean, what option do you have? You, 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 you try to come to terms and, and try, maybe try to get the uh, buyer to uh, sign off on that mutual release so you can get your deposit back, right? Or try to see if you can get somebody to finance it the, the dispute for you, uh, but you really don't have a lot of options. There might be lawyers who may be willing to take a case like that on a contingency basis. From my experience, it's really rare. 
uh, lawyers don't take real estate disputes on a contingency basis right. uh, because there's no guarantee that uh, that they're going to get paid. If you have professionals who've been at fault, it's usually good because they're insured, like lawyers, uh, realtors, mortgage brokers. Like if as soon as you see uh, a professional that has made a mistake, uh, then that's good, right? Because then you can sue them. And then there's an insurance company with deep pockets in a situation like that. A lawyer is more likely to take the file on a contingency basis. But uh, yeah, if you don't have money, you're out of luck. You know, it's not a good situation to be in. Right. Um, yeah. What are some mistakes that sellers or their agent is making in the sale process that later on a buyer can use to poke holes uh, and perhaps use that against them if if they're not going to close. Yeah, so mistakes in the agreement of purchase and sale uh, are one example. They are rare because usually, uh, you know, from what I understand, brokerages provide some support typically to their agents and they say, you know, we'll get the agreement reviewed. My recommendation to new agents is be very careful, even though it looks like a form and we all fill out forms uh, on a regular basis, that form is probably one of the most important documents your client is going to sign. So you got to be really careful with it. Take it really seriously. Uh, so mistakes in the agreement of purchase and sale is one uh, um, area when where you see these uh, issues. Another mistake uh, is correspondence, like text messages between the agents that 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 uh, haven't been approved by the client, right? And uh, agents are usually on the road and they're quicking, they have to be by because of the nature of their work, they have to be quick in responding to people. And, uh, you know, uh, we do see situations where um, agent is promising something, like for example, buyer's agent is saying, we need this and this fixed, and they say, no problem, I'll take care of it, or I'll get my client to take care of it, whereas that hasn't, they never really got the approval from the client. They didn't talk to them uh, uh, about this, uh, about the issue. Also, when you have, um, when the agent double ends, uh, and there's a dispute, it's a really bad position to be in. It's really important for the agent to quickly withdraw as soon as they notice that uh, there is a dispute and there's a possibility that uh, the deal is not going to close and ask the parties to correspond with each other through their lawyers and try to remove themselves from the process as much as possible. Uh, for, with mortgage brokers, there's all sorts of issues, right? Submission of fraudulent documents to the bank is one of them. Lots of mortgage brokers are doing that without the buyer even knowing about it. Um, and unfortunately the buyers don't have a lot of options, right? When I just talked about all the complexities of litigation, then they learn that it's possible that their mortgage broker is submitting some documents. They just, um, end up not paying attention to that because they think, you know, well, I don't really have a lot of options available to me. I really want this deal to close. Right. So you see that happening a lot. Um. Uh, yeah, so those are, and with lawyers also, failure to tender, failure to, um, to to do what you're supposed to do within the timelines. 
uh, you know, lawyers charge a small amount compared to other professionals, but in the real estate closing process, but there's a lot of firm deadlines in that agreement of purchase and sale. If you fail to meet them, you really screwed up your client's case, right? So we see that happening um, um, often, not not very often, but from time to time we see it happening. You know, for example, they they don't submit the requisition letter uh, on time, you know, right. uh, and or or they fail to uh, correspond um, in a timely fashion with the other solicitor. Uh, they basically end up creating excuses for the defaulting party. Right. So the lawyer for the seller in that example also needs to be really careful because sure, your client's able to close. Now you sense that the buyer is not able to close. But if you don't take all the steps that you have to take, you end up screwing up your client's file and then he's going to look to you and ask why you did that, right? When otherwise they would have had a strong case uh, in the litigation process. Right. And when uh, and another thing that is extremely important is the time is of the essence clause in the agreement of purchase and sale. And this case law that uh, clarifies that that is a strict provision. When it, when it says time is of the essence, there's a major difference between 559 and 601. There's a big difference, right? So you can't uh, you can't say, well, I, we sent the closing funds at 601. Uh, and even though it sounds like it's good enough, it really isn't. Because if the judge is going to say, yes, six, a one-minute delay is fine, then what about a 10-minute delay? What about a 50-minute delay? What about a few hours only, Your Honor? You know, what's the difference? What about next day? And then because of the chain reaction that's going to have on the on the market, the courts are hesitant to uh, to give you that type of uh, flexibility. flexibility. They say, no, you know, it really sucks for you. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to give this order because if I don't, then this becomes a precedent. And then now every other buyer who's late in delivering funds is going to try to rely on this. And then are going to have chaos in the in the market. No one's going to have certainty. Right. People want to know when they're going to be able to uh, uh, to to move in. There's also other mistakes that lawyers make, especially now with COVID. Uh, so you, there's an obligation to tender, which means that you need to deliver certain things before closing, right? And then once the uh, all of those things are delivered. Uh, the deal closes. So for a purchaser, purchaser needs to deliver funds, closing documents, seller needs to deliver closing documents and keys. Now, these days, one of the issues that we see is uh, keys are not really being delivered. They're now left in a mailbox, uh, uh, in a lockbox, lock uh, typically. And then we see lawyers, seller lawyers, who refuse to give the lockbox code and they say, we will give the code to you after closing. Uh, I don't know if a case has been litigated yet, but I would assume that if it does get litigated, uh, the buyer's lawyer can say the seller failed to tender. Right. Because you didn't give me the code. And and there's I see a lot of lawyers these days uh, adopting that as their practice because they've had the unfortunate situation where they released the lockbox code to the other lawyer before closing and then they learned that the lawyer also gave it to their client and the client uh, opened the door or moved in 
before the deal even closed. Uh, and on that basis, they say we refuse to give you the lockbox code, but they should understand that when you're doing that, you're taking on liability for yourself, right? So you shouldn't worry about the other side misusing the code or releasing trust property before uh, closing. If they do that, it's their responsibility. The prudent uh, thing to do is to give the uh, lockbox code to to the buyer solicitor and ask them to hold that in trust until the deal closes. Until closed. So, or you see buyer lawyers who send images of uh, funds. They don't send the funds. Um, they just take a photo of a bank draft. Uh, like, for example, in a situation where the seller is uh, not able to deliver vacant possession, and that happens a lot, rental property uh, sold uh, without really having looked into what steps need to be taken to evict the tenant, and then they realize, oh, God, I'm going to have to give vacant possession. This tenant's not going to move out. They communicate that. Buyer learns of that. So buyer knows that the seller is not going to be giving vacant possession. They uh, haven't uh, relied on anticipatory breach. It's closing day. They're trying to tender to show that they're really ready, willing, and able to close. And they scan a bank draft uh, and send the image uh, to the other lawyer. Now, uh, does that leave room for the allegation that the uh, buyer wasn't in funds? Yes. Because what, what does a bank draft mean? You didn't give me the funds. You didn't right. tender the funds, right? You just took a photo of a bank draft. Maybe you used other trust funds that you had um, to get that bank draft. And quickly thereafter, you canceled the draft and deposited it back into your account. Right. What does that mean if you're showing me a bank draft payable to my firm without delivering the bank draft to me or without direct depositing it into, into, into my account? Right. So there's all sorts of mistakes that can happen. And, you know, it's it's really unfortunate for the real estate lawyer. They're charging very little, unfortunately, because of the way the market has evolved. And there's a lot of obligations on them. So I usually sympathize with them when I see them having made these types of errors. And and I realize, you know, when you're only charging $1,000, there's only so much you can do. But it's, it's extremely important for them to be careful about the impact that that's going to have on the eventual dispute if the parties go to court. Right. Switching gears a little bit with regards to, uh, talk to, talk to me about actually how COVID changed your industry. Cause I know there's a lot that has changed. I, I remember when I was closing on a property pre COVID, you have to show up and see the lawyer. You have to, uh, deliver the checks. You got to sign in person. A lot has changed because of COVID, at least with your firm. Tell me about what you guys have done. Yeah, so I think COVID was a blessing, really. Uh, it was an unfortunate um, thing that happened to the world. But uh, from the perspective of the legal industry, I think it was a complete blessing. Uh, the um, legal industry has traditionally been behind when it comes to technology and use of technology. As an example, I can tell you that uh, before COVID, I had so many situations where um, I was in court and uh, the, uh, you know, for a motion maybe, and uh, the opposing lawyer raises uh, an issue that is uh, incorrect, it's wrong. And to prove it, I would, uh, you know, try to show a document to the judge on my iPad 
I'd say, Your Honor, you know, what he says is not true. In fact, there's an email that I can show to you that shows that it's not true. Here you go. And usually the judges would say, I'm, no, I, I cannot accept that. And then typically we would say, uh, you know, if we can adjourn and then uh, I will go get that printed and then pass on the, the hard copy uh, to the judge. Whereas when you have a hard copy available back in the day, you could pass it on, even though they could object, you could, the judge would entertain it a lot more easily than they would a document on an iPad. Nowadays, you email courts, uh, you, you submit documents uh, online. And in, in the real estate closing process, also ID verification requirements changed before you had to meet with them in person. Uh, and I think that was not um, productive because we're not trained to be able to tell the difference between a fake ID and a real ID. So even if I'm meeting somebody in person, uh, if you show me a driver's license that's fake, I'm not going to know that that's fake unless it's, it's obvious. But usually these fakes are good. Or if, if the person doesn't particularly look like the photo, what am I going to do? Right? <laughs> what am I going to do? Maybe the guy gained a lot of weight or lost a lot of weight or maybe, you know, put on a beard, <laughs> put on a beard or a mustache or, you know, it's just awkward. And especially when you live in a multicultural society, like really, are you going to raise those types of things? And it's just an awkward situation. So I remember back in the day, you would look at the ID and you'd say, okay, sure. You know, <laughs> unless it's, it's, it's just extremely obvious. And, and right. usually that's not the case. So I think ID verification online is just as good. Uh, you still see the ID, you see their face by meeting them in person. You're not necessarily, uh, you know, safeguarding against any anything that you're not online. And that um, makes, I mean, this whole process, when I closed the transaction during COVID, it made it a lot easier. Yeah. And I can, I, I loved it personally. And I think the clients want this as well. For so. sure. Because a lot of people are, are working full time uh, and, and lawyer offices are usually open during business hours. That meant that they had to take a day off just to go to the lawyer's office to get documents signed. If there's a deficiency in the documents, sometimes a client had to go again uh, to sign documents. It's rare, but it, 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 it may happen. Uh, so definitely it's become a lot more efficient. And also I think the expectation has changed a little bit. Before, people wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't trust a lawyer without having met them in person. You know, right. uh, they, they, would, they would want to go to an office and, and meet them. and. Uh, and know where their closing funds are going. But now uh, the standard has changed slightly. Uh, now online presence, perhaps your Google reviews, your, rep your online reputation uh, arguably matters more than your physical presence. Right. Uh, and, and people, and it's not as strange. Before, if I told a client who was selling their home that I'm not even going to be meeting you once throughout this process, but yet I'm going to be receiving proceeds of sale uh, of your home, you know, was going to be strange to them. But now everyone's okay with that. It's, it's fine. Right. And there's no issue. So COVID was really a blessing. It, it made, it pushed the legal industry towards the path of technology and it was, it was really needed. And uh, maybe it's not even enough where we're at right now. Maybe we need yet another push, but right. it, it definitely opened uh, the doors to technology, and I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot of 
uh, new um, products, technology, software out there in different areas of law. Right. To hopefully make this pretty expensive process, especially on the litigation side, as we discussed, and maybe make it a little bit more affordable for uh, anyone that's unfortunately ha has to deal with it. Um, talk to me about why I know back in the day, maybe title insurance wasn't that prevalent or important, but now it's almost everyone's getting title insurance. Why? So uh, title insurance covers a, a, a bunch of uh, defects, a, a bunch of issues that wouldn't necessarily be uh, apparent on a title search. So lawyers are doing the title searches. Uh, but there's also a lot of searches that are called off-title searches. Uh, back in the day, lawyers, when, when there was no title insurance, lawyers would also complete all of those off-title searches and would, would give you a title opinion, uh, which meant that the lawyer was on the hook for any title defects. Uh, uh, my understanding is that at that time, lawyers used to charge anywhere between seven to 10000 for every closing. And uh, not not like right now. Right now, the going rate seems to be fifteen hundred approximately, or or maybe two thousand. Um, Can you give me an example of a title defect? So a title defect would be, for example, an encroaching fence. Uh, that's that's an issue, right? Because now you have a neighbor, or it could be a fence, or it could be any sort of structure that encroaches on your uh, on the on the subject property. That would only be shown uh, by reviewing the survey. Uh, surveys aren't mandatory. A lot of deals close without a survey uh, and, and that's totally fine, right? You don't necessarily need to have a survey uh, as part of your due diligence process. And uh, you can basically close on the basis of the assumption that there are no encroachments. And if it turns out that there were some encroachments, then you make a claim to, to title insurance. Uh, another type of defect uh, could exist, for example, when uh, when you have a claim uh, against the uh, uh, the property by uh, uh, by a neighbor or or by a municipality, and and you just didn't know about it. Uh, municipal issues don't turn into a lien right away. And there's a whole process. The municipality sends a lot of notices and warnings until it gets to a point where they say, we're now going to register a lien. Right. And so the lien can end up being registered after the fact. Uh, another, and, and, and some of those issues, for example, could be a, an illegal basement mm -hmm. or uh, a work that was done in the property without uh, the, the appropriate permits for it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and the municipality learns of that and now they uh, issue a work order and they say, for example, you need to completely remove this garage uh, or we're going to register a lien on, on the property. And that basically becomes a title defect because now you, you're dealing with an issue uh, that, that can end up with a lien on, on title if you, don't, if you don't address it immediately. So all, all, all of those issues. And those issues, you lawyer wouldn't know when they're doing the title search. We don't even see the property, right? That's really important for 
for people to know when a lawyer is doing your closing all they see is the title to the property and they review it to see what instruments have been registered on title but not all instruments uh, not everything ends up with a registration you have all of these claims that haven't really made their way uh, uh, to title just yet right. maybe they would be known and when we say off-title searches for example one of those would be to write a letter to the municipality and ask if there's any outstanding work orders against this property all of these things make it so incredibly expensive much easier to just get yeah, title insurance and also it's important to note another point it's not always good to know everything right like when you're a buyer and you're getting title insurance does it make sense to dig uh too deep and and and, and for example uh requisition you know right to the to the title to the municipality and 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 do that off title search does it make sense maybe it does you know if you if you if you have a particular need and you want to make sure for example that uh you can you can meet that need it might make sense but if you know about the issue prior to closing and you close it's not covered by title insurance so sometimes it's good not to know right yeah and and that's that's basically the that's that's the that's the way the industry's evolved um yeah it's it's now gotten to a point where for due diligence uh, there's there's a fine line on how much how how much of due diligence is appropriate too much due diligence isn't necessarily good right yeah could also ultimately hurt you it could hurt you it could it could impact your title insurance claim <laughs>